The Primal Pioneer. Live an outdoor life. Hosted by Quantum Clinician and creator of the Sunlight RX, Heather Shepard. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Primal Pioneer Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Shepard, and today you're listening to episode 7 Are You Living Like a Polar Bear? Today's episode is really awesome. I loved it. I love this interview with Dr. Leland Stillman, a super informed medical doctor, really pioneering the way in the realms of the medical field, the conventional medical field. And he's really stretching out and embracing, encompassing integrative medicine and mitochondrial healing into his own practice, which is super, super awesome. But before I dive into the episode today, I want to take a minute to thank you all for all your support around the show, around my work. It's super, super moving and inspiring. Thank you so much for this. I love building community centered around health and healing, and it's the support and feedback that you all continue to share with me about this show, about my work that makes this journey so enriching. So thank you all so much for that. Today, as I mentioned, I have a really awesome guest, Dr. Leland Stillman. Dr. Stillman is a general internist at Anders Wellness Consulting in Colonial Heights, Virginia. And like myself, he is a fellow mitochondriac and mitohacker. And the cool, inspiring thing about Dr. Stillman is he's doing things much differently than most medical doctors are doing today, which I really appreciate and I hope you all do as well. To me, this is super refreshing and it's exactly what our culture needs. It's craving, it's longing for to really start making real lasting forward movement with our health and improving our health. So during this episode, we dive into some really awesome topics. We get into underlying causes of autoimmunity. We explore how the environment you live in shapes your health and healing outcomes. We get into supplement myths such as supplement myths around vitamin D, melatonin, glutathione, and all the myths and even dangers around some of these supplementations that are pushed really hard on a lot of people today. We get into why you need to live like a polar bear or why many of you need to go this route to help support your healing process. We get into a little bit about the root causes of Hashimoto's. We get into mitochondrial healing diets and approaches to diet that actually encompass mitochondrial health. And We also have a fun, eye-opening fire round at the end of the show where Dr. Stillman shares his knowledge around topics such as sunlight, leaky gut, CT or cold thermogenesis, vegan diets, CBD oil, and more. So I think you all are going to love this episode. I know I really loved interviewing Dr. Stillman and can't wait to get him on the show again. So enjoy. So today I have Dr. Stillman on the show. Dr. Stillman, thanks so much for joining me here. Super stoked to have you on the show. Um, Dr. Stillman is a general internist, MD, 
and I'll let him share a little bit of detail about his own practice, but really he stood out to me because he does things differently than other medical doctors. And to me, uh, when I saw his, his YouTube videos, he's got a great YouTube channel. You can find him at stillmanmd.com as well. But really, he's talking about things in a very proactive way, in a way that addresses root causes of a lot of chronic diseases today, which we'll get into here during the show. But um, I'm really excited to have you on, Dr. Stillman. So welcome. Thank you for having me. So my background is a general internist. I currently practice integrative and holistic medicine in Richmond, Virginia. And this month I actually am joining a new practice called Anders Wellness Consulting. And we focus on helping people with chronic diseases or who've got new diagnoses of diseases that uh, let's just say people are struggling to treat, struggling to cure, and who people who want you know integrative and holistic approaches. We see a lot of cancer, we see a lot of autoimmune diseases, a lot of allergies, uh, and we try and take a natural holistic approach, which of course is, um, it's my it's been my passion for a long time, and so I'm delighted to be here to share it with people. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and that's really unique for a medical doctor. Can you share a little bit with us about how did you get started with medicine? What provoked you? What inspired you to go into this field? So from a very early age, I had a lot of the illnesses that I now uh, I now know to take a history for in my own patients. Uh, I started to have ear infections very early on. I uh, had, my mom basically says that I had two years of straight antibiotics. Wow. And then I wasn't a very happy, healthy, uh, you know, vigorous kid. Mm-hmm. I remember being like last pick on the football field and things like that. And it always puzzled me and it always frustrated me because I came from a family of high achievers. Mm-hmm. And I went through uh, elementary school and middle school and was always a very high achieving student. Uh, and then I went into high school and became fascinated by health and wellness because it seemed like such a complicated, interesting puzzle, so to speak. And I had my own kind of case that in the back of my mind, I always wondered, you know, why, you know, why do I struggle with this or struggle with that? And, you know, why are those kids over there faster, bigger, stronger, whatever than I am? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because particularly like my family didn't have any, any history. We had plenty of really great athletes in the family. So I ended up, uh, my mother over the years got sick of of the conventional approach to our illnesses because it was so expensive and inconvenient and sometimes just downright painful and uh, often very ineffective. And so she went from one natural holistic doctor to another. And we really, we tried a smorgasbord of alternative medicine. Um, some, some pretty, I mean, we went out and I remember getting uh, cupping or coining, um, mm-hmm. which people can look up, which is like a Southeast Asian healing modality. And then, you know, we went to homeopaths and craniosacral therapists and chiropractors and we did it all. Um, and, and so I was sort of thrust into this world. And then I met a, a mentor who's a naturopath at 15. Uh, and he told me I should just go to medical school because it was the, the best licensure, the strongest education, the most rigorous training, and that I would learn to really treat the whole um, spectrum of disease and health. And so I went on to college, went through, got my uh, bachelor's in biology and environmental health, and then I went to the University of Virginia, and then I, I realized that I was very academically minded, mm. and uh, 
I ended up gravitating towards the field of allergy and immunology because it's a very integrative in terms of a systems biology perspective. You're looking at many different components of the human body coming together really to constitute an entire system across the organism uh, that is supposed to do things that are as diverse as, you know, repel parasites in your skin and eliminate uh, viruses in tiny corners of your your neurons and your central nervous system. So it's a very complicated system. And then I went on to do my training in internal medicine, which is really the, uh, you know, most people who, um, when you're going to the doctor, you know, a general internist is someone who's had a lot of training in the ICU, a lot of training in hospitals and has a certain level of comfort with the most uh, critically ill uh, patients and, and cases. Mm -hmm. And I did that because I wanted to have a really rigorous background in the physiology. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's one of the reasons why I'm so enthusiastic about taking on, uh, particularly young adult patients or middle-aged patients who've got autoimmune diseases. And then I'm not afraid to see patients who are, are older and dealing with, with difficult diagnoses like cancer, chronic end-stage organ disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's really where my my holistic integrative um, passion lies is helping people with really difficult uh, diagnoses and diseases mm -hmm. uh, do everything they can to to at least slow them down and at best uh, reverse them. Amazing! That's ambitious of you. We need a lot more uh, doctors like that who are who are open to going into these realms and who are bringing this diverse approach. So. Um, Let's get into this a little bit for, for our listeners here, especially with regard to uh, these realms of autoimmunity. Um, give our listeners a little background of maybe how the standard uh, of care would approach autoimmunity, gut autoimmunity, and the approach you use. Um, and just give us a little uh, background here and explain the two differences. Sure. So first of all, let's talk about what normal immunity looks like, because I think this is a really complex uh, a topic that a lot of people often don't bother to sort of define. Because really autoimmunity is a dysfunction of the immune system in which you're attacking your own, your own body. But what's interesting about it is that it keeps very close company with other diseases. So a lot of people who've got an autoimmune illness will be positive for something like Epstein-Barr virus, or they'll be positive for uh, some kind of, you know, some kind of oftentimes very um, uh, esoteric uh, uh, bacteria, viruses, whatever. Yes. And this really muddies the picture. There's this great book called The Autoimmune Epidemic. I can't remember the name of the author, but she gives a great sort of explanation of how many confounding variables there are in this story. Uh, you know, is it the heavy metals? Is it the infectious agents? Is it um, just the immune system, you know, not having the right fuel and nutrients. So let's talk about what proper healthy immunity is. It's when the immune system properly recognizes and discriminates between things that are dangerous for it and things that are good for it. Now, part of this is sort of like, you know, your garbage man has to take the garbage out effectively, right? So the immune system is in some ways like the garbage man. Um, you don't want your garbage man to show up at your at your uh, your curb, the curb of your house, and you know start firing a gun at your your garbage uh, bin. You want him to empty it into the garbage truck, right? 
at the same time, you know, if there's a shootout at a local bank over a robbery, you want the police to arrive and you don't want them to try and empty the robbers into a garbage truck. You want them to shoot at the robbers, apprehend them, et cetera, et cetera, right? So immune system's got to do a lot of interesting different things and handle things in different ways. To give you like exactly sort of some examples of how this works in nature, you're, you're constantly exposed to pollen, mold allergens, pet dander, you know, everything from mite, uh, dust mite um, feces to uh, to cockroach um, uh, proteins that are, get, end up in your household air. Mm-hmm. And your immune system has to take out that trash. And when it gets confused, it starts to attack that trash. Mm-hmm. And that is like the garbage man showing up, you know, and assaulting your, your trash bin. Mm-hmm. And so the immune system's got to be properly time, like primed and educated, and it's got to have the right response to different things. So that's a healthy immune system. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that we see allergies and autoimmunity keeping such close company is that they're happening, they happen basically by the same process, which is a loss of immune tolerance to that thing. So how does the immune system, you know, end up basically knowing what to do, where to do it, how to do it, right? The immune system is an incredibly complex organ that has really co-evolved with our microbiome, the pathogens, the parasites that we live with. And what's interesting is that there is a very gray, a very broad gray area between being infected with something and having something that's commensal. What I mean by commensal is just something that's just, we're just living with it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, if I, if I test everybody's skin for, say, Staphylococcus aureus, or if I test 100 people for one of the herpes viruses, mm-hmm. right? And they all come back positive. Mm-hmm. You know, does that mean that they have a disease? Should I give them an antibiotic? Should I give them an antiviral, right? Mm-hmm. What, what conventional medicine looks at in this case, they say, we would be treating everyone all of the time with no end in sight. Mm-hmm. Doctors want a start and a finish. Mm-hmm. And they want, so to speak, a smoking gun. They want like a... a a problem that they can monitor and that they can document a cure of because otherwise you sort of don't know what you're treating to. Um, And that's something really important for people with autoimmune diseases to understand, particularly when they become uh, fixated or fascinated with the idea that they've got like a chronic infection. So I run into this with folks with chronic Lyme disease all the time. They're very interested in getting antibiotics, but the dirty secret of a lot of these Lyme clinics is that you end up on the antibiotics for a long period of time. And then you get into this place where maybe the antibiotics made you feel better, but eventually they stop working. And that's why I'm a real bear with people who, who want antibiotics for chronic Lyme disease to avoid them. Yeah. Um, or at least to use them judiciously and with some kind of, of understanding that they're, they're like, they have to be a bridge to somewhere. And if you don't see the other side, you don't know where you're going. Yeah. Um, so the, basically the, the way that the immune system learns how to attack and what to attack all comes down to, and this is really my, uh, my based on my le- reading of the literature, it's, it's kind of hard to, to point you in the direction of like a really solid study that just like proves this. Mm-hmm. But basically the immune system is wired to, to be modulated by the environment that you're in. So... If you look at how our exposure to different things that infect us occur in nature, all of them run through circadian cycles. Mm. The time of day at which 
fungal spores are released, the environmental conditions under which they're released, um, you know, when different uh, parasites, bacteria, viruses are active in our environment, we might be exposed to them, and also when they're active and replicating and moving and whatever inside of our own bodies, all of these things take place based on circadian or around the day and circannual or around the year cycles. So for example, if you're a polar bear in the Arctic, you're most likely to be exposed to parasites during the summer. Mm. Why? Because there's a lot of nutrition available in the environment and because every all organisms struggle to survive in the cold. They thrive in warm climates. Mm -hmm. so there's tons of parasites in the tropics and there's far, far fewer as you go further north. And in the seasonal change, the polar bears are more likely to have exposure to parasites in the summer than they are in, say, the winter. This is true of all bears and all humans, too. Mm. So you have to understand what's happening in that environment is actually not just what they're exposed to, but also what signals the environment is sending, sending to them. So, for example, polar bears and really all mammals, their vitamin D consumption in the, in the summer is very, very high. For polar bears, that's because they're eating a ton of, of seafood, which they always are. But the winter is when they're mostly fasting and hibernating and, and food is scarce because it's so cold. All humans at all high latitudes, um, particularly you know, like high latitudes, the further you go from the equator, the more people depend on fish. And there's a very deep biological reason for that. After your vitamin D level dips below a certain point, you end up developing a much higher likelihood of many uh, immunological problems, autoimmune diseases, allergies, and cancers really top the list. But yeah. that's frankly just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And you know, vitamin D is not just a function of how much fish you eat. It's, about, it's a function of how much UV light you're exposed to. Uh -huh. So somebody who's in the tropics could never eat fish. And so long as they are exposing their skin to the sunlight, they will still get enough vitamin D. So what I stress with people who have immunological problems is that really your immune system is supposed to be modulated by signals that it gets from the environment. Food is just one of those interfaces with the environment. And, you know, the most important nutrients for autoimmune disease, you see that they're close to this oceans and you see that they are linked to temperature and, um, really, uh, annual cycles. So like, you know, you look into the autoimmune, allergic and cancer literature, it's all about things like vitamin D, iodine, selenium, a lot of other trace elements and nutrients, um, many of which are rich in the seafood chain. And you've got to keep your skin in the game in order to get the right food and then the right signals from the environment, typically in the, and prominently in the form of sunlight in order to actually optimize your immune system to avoid all of these diseases. Yeah, I, I think that that is a, a great explanation. And I think, you know, would you be willing here to share a little bit about, okay, for the new listener, for, for someone who has autoimmunity or, <clears throat> excuse me, a chronic disease, what is circadian biology? And what in our body really helps to helps us to maintain to keep a, a healthy circadian biology, and and what are some things that we interact with that we experience in our environment that can make it go awry? Yeah, absolutely. So 
Circadian means around the day. So around the 24-hour daylight cycle that we're used to here on Earth. And then circannual means around the year. So, you know, the four seasons of the year, which of course vary in their severity or, or I guess extremity, however you want to put it, uh, based on your latitude. So uh, the circadian, basically the link between circadian and circannual problems um, and immunological diseases is that it's hard to, it's, it's funny, these things are so interconnected, but it, to me, it always, it always comes back to light and light always comes back to melatonin. So melatonin is the master circadian hormone. It's secreted by the pineal gland into the bloodstream four hours after darkness. Now that's like the bottom line with melatonin. There's a lot more to say about it. It is a very complex neurohormone. It's actually produced in practically every tissue of the body at different times of day in different parts of the cell in response to different stresses, which is one reason why I caution people not to take melatonin supplements because you're supposed to make it. And um, I explain to people that, you know, taking melatonin supplements is a little bit like turning on, uh, like busting open the fire hydrant on your street and expecting it to do the dishes in your sink. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's, it's like you, you need to respect the fact that your body's going to produce it in a way that's optimized and you just have to basically pull the brake off of that. So what's the brake for melatonin? It's light mm-hmm. and specifically blue and green light. So light 101, like not all light is the same color, right? So you look at a candle, you look at a fire, you look at say a red light on say a fire truck. It's got this color that we call warm or this like glow. It's, it, it's sort of warm and inviting, right? Mm-hmm contrast that with say the sun at noon or with these really high intensity like xenon bulbs that you're seeing in cars now that I think are just, I mean, I'm kind of surprised no one's like, like I know I have patients who can, who can barely see and I I don't know how they drive safely when they get these lights straight in their eye. I mean, it, it just can't be safe. But anyway, so you've got these very high color temperature, cold, extremely bright bulbs, and you've got these warm colors over here, right? So basically, your, your eye, even though you may not be able to, your eye and the, really the timing mechanism in there can actually distinguish these colors. So blue and green light, which is very abundant in these very bright, high-intensity lights, shuts down your melatonin, or I should say it delays your melatonin release from your pineal gland. Now, why is this important for immunological diseases? Melatonin is the master signaling molecule of your circadian rhythms. And it is also the thing that basically renovates and tunes up your cells overnight. And the polar bear is an exceptional example of where, of how melatonin, how, how powerful melatonin can be. So, uh, and I think I should have mentioned this earlier, but for people who don't, who don't follow my work, who haven't ever heard of me before, I just launched this, this course called Polar Bear Fitness at polarbear.fitness. And my whole goal with this course is to educate people on how light is really shaping their lives and how it can radically alter their physiology using, as an example, the polar bear. So melatonin, is the, we, we think of it as the hormone of sleep. I've heard it called nature's soporific. And melatonin, as I said, it's secreted three to four hours after darkness and it runs around the body turning on all these rest and rejuvenation protocols. Well, one of the things that it does is it decreases inflammation, improves cellular function, and 
part of that would be, or is, I should say, putting the brakes on the immune system. One of the things that we look for in autoimmune and allergic disease is an immune system that's really off the chain. It's too active. It's way overactive. And, you know, like I said, it's confused, right? So it's, it's hitting the wrong thing. And actually, those people may be immunocompromised, which is a whole other story. But what's interesting when you look at the literature on melatonin, since we've created artificial light, we've seen a radical rise in autoimmune diseases in places, like the further you go from the equator. This is a function, I believe, of two things. One, people in these, in these locations are abusing artificial light, and they're creating a 16-hour day, like 365 days a year. Now, the sun reduces all-cause mortality. The more sun you get, the less likely you are to die. The more sun you get, the lower your incidence of allergies, autoimmune diseases. In my book, sun exposure is nature's immunotherapy. It's nature's way of regulating and toning your immune system and helping it to react to the right things in the right way. So melatonin and the polar bears. The polar bears live under basically constant light all summer. And the consequence is that they fall apart. They actually develop obesity and diabetes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they actually gain hundreds of pounds. I mean, we're talking double digit weight gain uh-huh. uh, each summer. Now, during that time, their melatonin levels are very low because they're chronically suppressed by the light. Okay. Now, as during this, this period of time, by the way, a lot of other changes in their hormones uh, uh, take place. And what people ought to know about this is that melatonin, because it's the master circadian molecule, it controls levels of all of the other hormones that your body secretes. So people who have issues with their thyroid hormone, people who have issues with, say, estrogen dominance, men who have problems with low testosterone. Mm-hmm. Well, as the summer goes on and the polar bears sort of fall apart under this constant light stress in the Arctic summer, guess what? The polar bear testosterone levels wane. This works for the polar bear because it means that polar bear testosterone naturally peaks and estrogen for the females in the spring, which is the optimal time for them to mate. They've just finished hibernating. They're starting to get some food because it's warming up and they mate and then the females conceive. And then later in the fall, the the, uh, cubs or the, the ovum egg, whatever, implants. And then later the mother will deliver in the Arctic winter, right? But the bottom line is that melatonin is really driving and controlling all these um, processes. So you get these hormonal shifts in response to melatonin in your light environment. And then as the summer goes on, the polar bears fall apart. They get fat and diabetic. And then as the winter comes, the darkness and the return of darkness leads to the radical increase in melatonin levels. The best data I've got on this, and I always chuckle when I think about the poor like lab techs who have to collect this data. Like, how do you draw blood from a, like an adult grizzly bear? You know, that's got to be really nerve wracking, right? So that actually explains why a lot of this data is like new. Like one of my favorite papers called Life in the Fat Lane came out just like two years ago. And it's this absolutely mammoth paper on, on grizzly bear biology. And I just, it's actually staggering how much work they must have done in order to get the data. Wow. Okay. Anyway, so melatonin levels then like skyrocket in the winter because it's constant darkness virtually. And for animals that den and hibernate, it it truly is constant darkness. Uh So what does melatonin do? It turns on all these rest and regeneration programs. It radically reduces inflammation. People who are interested in reducing their inflammation, eating an anti-inflammatory diet, 
you know, the number one thing they ought to know about melatonin is one, it controls all of the antioxidant machinery within the cell. Like if, if you're taking glutathione and you're not paying attention to your light environment, you know, it's like you might as well, it's like, it's like putting a bucket underneath your roof where there's a leak instead of fixing the leak. Uh-huh. And then two, melatonin is nature's most powerful antioxidant. It is four to seven times more powerful than vitamin C and vitamin E. And so while we can get a lot of therapeutic benefit out of these antioxidants, we really need to think, wait a minute, nature's antioxidant is melatonin. We can produce it. So if you're spending money on antioxidant supplements and you're fighting some inflammatory autoimmune disease, you need to, to realize that blue blockers can help you turn on your natural melatonin production in your body while also upregulating the antioxidant machinery of each each cell. Uh-huh. And this is why, you know, as we as we as as people try and eat healthier and healthier and healthier, we nonetheless see more and more autoimmune disease, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Because you know, people are not fixing this light environment. It's really only now, just now coming into focus for them, which is why I started Polar Bear Fitness. Uh-huh. You know, I think this is really good for the listeners to hear because a lot of people will go and they'll get genetic testing or, or even lab work. They'll go to, you know, a naturopath or a functional medicine doctor and they'll come home with a laundry list full of supplements to take. And, you know, one of the key take homes I try to teach and, and tell um, the people I work with and my audience about is that if you can make it, don't take it. You really shouldn't be taking it. You know, maybe there's some exceptions here or there, but I think this is really huge. You brought up two huge um, aspects here with melatonin and with glutathione, which are two super hot topics that tend to get really overprescribed today. Right. Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen people take tons of that stuff. And, you know, when I, when I realized that I was recommending it to people without even understanding basically how it worked, I was just blown away. Um, but you know, the dirty little secret of the supplement industry is that there's no incentive to tell people, you know, how this can work without the supplement. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And you know, while we're on this path, cause I think it, uh, and you mentioned it here, it ties into autoimmunity a lot is vitamin D supplementation. Share with us your thoughts there and, um, how you approach this in your practice. Yeah, absolutely. So vitamin D is one of my favorite markers. What people need to understand about vitamin D is that it is the t- at the tail end of a very long hormone cascade. And this cascade is is truly a cascade. Like a like a beautiful, you know, waterfall. It starts at one place and the water kind of flows down through this this pathway. And it, the, the starting precursor, pregnenolone, really feeds into our sex steroid hormones and our vitamin D and our DHEA. And then it's also cholesterol is in this pathway as well. And then finally at the tail end of this is vitamin D. So vitamin D is kind of like a great indicator for a lot of different things going on in the patient physiologically. And it tells you a lot about what kind of environment and diet that patient is living in. So so where do we get vitamin D? We get it from the sun in our skin. But what you got to understand about this, right, is that you need to have the vitamin D ready 
to be transformed by that UVB light mm-hmm. into active vitamin D. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have enough cholesterol, pregnenolone, all those precursors lined up mm-hmm. to produce that vitamin D. Mm-hmm. So when I see a low vitamin D, one of my first thoughts is, does this patient have enough cholesterol and does this patient have enough vitamin D precursor for them to make their own vitamin D? Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting study that I, I unearthed this year where they looked at healthy young Hawaiians who did spend a significant amount of time out in the sun in their daily life. And they found that some of these young Hawaiians nonetheless had low levels of vitamin D. Wow. Now, Hawaii is at the like the 22nd latitude. Uh-huh. There is, I don't think there's any place in the mainland of the United States except maybe the Florida Keys uh-huh. that is north of that latitude. Yeah. You have strong UV light in that latitude virtually all year. You know, December 21st, you don't, I think maybe there's a gap, but okay. it's such a small gap, it hardly even matters. And the comparison with some place like, say, Bellingham, Washington, or Bemidji, Minnesota, or Portland, Maine, Uh it's like those places, there's hardly any UV light for, you know, six, eight, nine months of the year. And then the small, short summer that they have, there's not even that much UV light. So what people need to understand is that it's it's this interplay between, do you have enough of the precursor in your body? Is your body healthy enough to produce it? And then two are you getting the UV light that you need in order to transform it into its active component? So, you know, vitamin D, very importantly for people with cancer, autoimmune diseases, allergies, we know that high levels of vitamin D protect us against these disorders. Mm -hmm. One of the most interesting areas of the literature, by the way, looks at whether or not vitamin D or sun exposure is actually a better... um, predictor of these illnesses and i think the literature is coming out pretty conclusively now that the sun has way more effect on our bodies than just producing vitamin d which is something that i stress to people you know Uh you can get vitamin d in a supplement but that is not the same as getting sunlight Um, the sun reduces all-cause mortality and there is no way around that and there's no way for me to bottle it and encapsulate it and put it in a pill um The other thing that I think when I see a low vitamin D is, does this patient, what is this patient eating? Because a couple of oysters here and there, you know, a couple servings of cold water fish, um, you know, I just had cod for dinner. If you just have three or four items of seafood, even in a week, you're getting a significant dose of vitamin D through those foods. Uh Um, There are some problems with metabolizing the vitamin D that you find in mushrooms, which I think a lot of vegans fixate on as their only source of vitamin D. Um, For them, getting sunlight is even more important. And I always point out to them that the only cultures to successfully have followed a vegan template, you know, one successive generation after another, they all live in extremely high, uh, high uh, solar yield environments, like close to the equator. And there's no vegans in Alaska. You know? um, and this is a really important point because vitamin D is just necessary for normal mammalian metabolism. Not only you know protecting yourself against vitamin D, obesity, sorry, protecting yourself against diabetes uh-huh. and, uh, and obesity, but vitamin D is necessary for normal functioning in the immune system, right? Yeah. So you know, as we've gotten away from fish and shellfish in these northern environments and moved towards land meats that are very, very low, to virtually zero vitamin D levels. Uh-huh. Uh, we've seen an explosion in autoimmune diseases. Yeah. So 
so that's how I approach vitamin D with folks. Um, it, it's a problem of, do they have enough basically going into the tank? Are they getting enough UV light to activate it? And then are they getting enough from their diet? Awesome. That's great. I think that's really helpful for, for people to hear. Um, and it's a, it's a very unique, it's a very cutting edge perspective compared to what um, a lot of other people are doing in always allopathic alternative today. And I think this is really, you know, getting back to nature, getting outside. It's, it's much easier than, than people are making it out to be. Um, I want to shift into a topic that is uh, a common occurrence in my practice, uh, which is Hashimoto's. Um, definitely ties in with this whole autoimmunity topic and vitamin D topic we're going about today. But um, I suspect that you have a unique perspective here on maybe some root causes here. And I'm curious if you could share with us um, what are some aspects of, um, let's say, the eye, the skin, this whole uh, topic around circadian biology that you're uh, connecting in here today? How is this related to a disease like Hashimoto's and, and how does this occur over time? Why are we seeing such increases in something that occurred um, very rarely back in the 1980s? Sure. So Hashimoto's is um, an autoimmune disease that affects the thyroid gland. Um, we see it all the time now. And like you said, it was not as common previously. Um, first of all, let's talk about the thyroid gland. It's, I think of it as being like the regulator on your metabolism. And it's got a natural circadian rhythm and a natural circannual rhythm. So it's got a natural cycle around the 24-hour daylight cycle and then around the year that it's secreted. And the reason for this is, is pretty simple. Um, you want your thyroid hormone to be, it, it helps your catecholamines, which are your wake up, get up and go uh, neurotransmitters to work. So you need it to be around when you need those, those neurotransmitters to be working optimally. It also works with cortisol in order to do this. And of course, Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism in general keeps very close company with you know, adrenal fatigue, right? Both of these diseases have a lot to do, in my opinion, with light. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things for people to understand is that the circadian rhythms of these glands are fundamentally determined by the light environment that people are in. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you put people in this artificially lit day for 16 hours a day where you know, the, the eye sees that your eye clock thinks it's just like solar noon all day and you're chronically deprived of melatonin at night. Yeah. It, you know, this is like a big ongoing experiment and, and all the data from the, from the lab would basically suggest that people's circadian rhythms get altered and, and therefore their hormone levels are become problematic. Mm -hmm. Now in Hashimoto's, you don't just have low hormone levels. You've actually got an autoimmune uh, reaction to the thyroid gland. So let's think about why this might happen. The immune system has gotten confused. It is suddenly recognizing the thyroid gland as something that it needs to attack. Mm -hmm. And this is where I try to explain to people because people get very, um, they want to suppress their immune system or they want to activate their immune system. And it depends on the, like obviously their clinical picture, right? But really what you want to do is you want to give your immune system the right signals for it to make the right decision. So when I look at, um, at Hashimoto's thyroiditis, 
when you go back in the literature and you look at what environmental causes may be triggering it, uh, there's actually a very strong association between um, between EMF, uh, which is to say electromagnetic frequencies, and specifically, uh, I call it fake light, just okay. to be um, kind of, I guess, glib about it and make it really simple. Sure. But basically, when we expose our bodies to artificial electrical magnetic uh, fields, and when we expose ourselves to microwave and radio wave radiations, mm-hmm. we've seen in the literature, significant associations with changes in thyroid function. Mm -hmm. And part of this, I'm convinced, is mediated through the immune system because you see an enormous number of changes in the immune system based on these artificial, and really the way to think about them is it's it's like electromagnetic pollution or electrosmog. And this is stuff that's being put off by your your cell phone when it communicates with the tower, when it communicates with your Wi-Fi router, uh, it's being put off by the uh, fields that are created by the wiring in our houses from our electrical grid, you know, high tension power lines. Uh, there's early work. Um, some of the earliest work in this field was done based on, you know, did people have more lymphomas and leukemias near high tension power lines or in very strong electrical and magnetic fields. Uh-huh. And when you think about it, the immune system is supposed to be monitoring the environment and and reacting to it. And when you look at how the immune system does this, it does it by basically trying to, 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 uh, to use molecular kind of handshakes, so we, shall we say, in order to distinguish friend from foe. Mm. And when you introduce all this, electri- now those, those handshakes, right, they're molecules that bind to one another. And their binding is all mediated by the electromagnetic force, right? Positives attract negatives, positives repel positives, mm-hmm. negatives repel negatives, right? So when you introduce a bunch of noise, which is either microwave or radio wave radiations or electrical or magnetic fields, you can alter the outcome of the immune system's attempts to distinguish friend from foe, shall we say. Okay, okay. And so that's the way I think about, uh, and that's the number one thing that I look for in people with a history of autoimmune disease. Okay. Um, one of the, the, other, the other major things are... Um, are toxic exposures because so many people will tell you that they were normal right up until they walked in, you know, they, they, they decided to volunteer for mold remediation in New Orleans after Katrina, or they decided to, um, you know, sign up with the oil companies and go out into the Gulf and they were exposed to some nasty chemical. So yeah, people can get, you know, a toxic insult or, or they may come down with some kind of, you know, infection. And sometimes we're never really sure exactly what it was they, they were dealing with. And you hear stories of people going to foreign countries and they get some kind of GI illness and they never quite feel better afterwards, even though there's nothing that's positive on testing. And so, you know, what I imagine is going on in these situations is that the the toxic insult or the infection that arose in the environment is causing, for some reason, their immune system to become confused. And then at mm-hmm. a certain point, the immune system loses tolerance to the thyroid gland. And that's when it starts to attack it. Um, and really, people have to understand the way that this, that fundamentally loss of tolerance works. It's all about... Uh, the competition or the attempts of our parasites, viruses, bacteria to mask themselves. So what they do is they very cleverly make their machinery look like our machinery, uh, but it's just different enough that our immune systems can still tell the difference. 
and that they can still get done what they need to get done. And this is called molecular mimicry. And this is one reason why so many people um, who struggle with autoimmune diseases, what they do to get better is they do things that help their system get stronger and they do things that help their immune system not just to become more, uh, should we say, aggressive, but they help the immune system to, to um, regulate itself better so that it, it kills the right cells that are infected with virus and then eventually eradicates the virus. So, and this okay. is where I, I come back to telling people that they've got to have their skin in the game because you really, what's the environment that you're in has got the cues that your immune system needs in order to be healthy. And this is why the lower your level of technology in your society, the lower your rate of allergic and autoimmune diseases. And when you hear about people yeah. going to foreign countries and reversing their autoimmune diseases, I always point out, well, didn't these people also leave behind their westernized high-tech ways, you know? So yeah. is it the fact yeah. that they, you know, it, which, which of these variables is really, are, are we really seeing here? And then, you know, you've mm -hmm. just got to understand, like, you get your skin back in the game, then you start, and, and when I say skin in the game, I mean, like, getting back into nature, you know, yeah. really being exposed to the forces of nature wherever, in whatever zip code you're in. And this is where cold exposure to me becomes very intriguing. People really haven't done as much with cold exposure as I think really they could do. And I was just two yeah. weeks ago reading papers on how, um, how the immune cells that mediate allergies also help our body to turn on fat burning to survive cold temperatures. And so I have this new idea in my head that maybe allergies are the result of chronic artificially heated houses and those allergic cells are looking for something to do and the best thing that they have to do is go after you know dust mites or mold pollen or pet dander or whatever and if you were to expose people to cold the way that nature intended they would actually have less allergies and we know that as we've as we've you know created more tech in the in the west to you know comfort ourselves basically uh, as we've embraced uh -huh. artificial heat, we've seen a rapid rise in, in allergies. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's just a like interesting yeah. tidbit that I thought I'd share with people that, that really blew my mind. No, I, th I think that's great. And I want to go to the cold therapy, but all this that you're saying is kind of, I, I can remember reading a study. I, I can't pinpoint which one it is. And I'm curious if you've read it or, or something similar. Maybe there's several of them of how non-native blue light specifically um, down regulates the immune system. Have you, am I, am I remembering this accurately? Uh, so this is a really interesting, it's such an interesting like topic because when we talk about the immune system, you know, down regulating, up regulating, I actually had a colleague complain to me the other day that it was too complicated. There were too many, um, <laughs> there were too many like cytokines and too many, you know, mediators yeah. of different reactions and whatever. And I, I commiserate with him because it really is extremely complicated. Uh -huh. The way I think to, to look at this is really that um, the immune system is, um, it's a very dynamic system and it's, it's not so much about it being on or off as it is how it's positioned, right? Um, uh -huh. And so when I look at something like blue light uh, uh, wrecking the immune system, shall we say, what I really 
think of is that melatonin is suppressed by blue light and melatonin is what renovates our mitochondria. And when you look at how immune cells signal, they signal through mitochondria and the production of neurotransmitters. And so when you disrupt this system and you, and you sort of chronically stress your mitochondria by chronically depriving them of the melatonin they need to be fit, then you create chronically stressed mitochondria and you would, I would expect, end up with immunological dysfunction. And this is one reason why blue light at night has been, and shift work have been strongly associated with both more allergies and autoimmune diseases. And I have had very, frankly, discouraging results um, with, with people who, um, who work night shift and have autoimmune or allergic diseases because it's just very hard for them to get any progress on their illness um, because the light they're living under doesn't allow their immune system or is chronically basically confusing their immune system, shall we say. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting. Um, going back to your correlation here and in, in your discoveries around uh, allergies and cold therapy, because a lot of the clients that um, I work with who have really, I mean, really intense allergies, like they can't go to work for weeks because they have intense allergies, um, really lead, uh, they, they, their house is like super warm in the winter, um, they're blasting the air conditioning in the, in the summer, um, there's this real, uh, their circadian biology, I suspect, is, is kind of offset, it's destroyed by this artificial heating and cooling. Um, so let's dive into this. Cause I know you're just, um, you're launching your polar bear course, which I'm super stoked about. That's awesome. And a lot of people are terrified of cold. Like when I mentioned cold therapy to them, they're like, Oh my God, I could never do that. But there's such huge, uh, benefits when it comes to, uh, mitochondrial health, mitochondrial healing, and, and share with us a little bit about cold therapy, your experience, um, and, and let's tie this in here. Yeah, definitely. So cold um, cold is one of nature's most fascinating stresses. Um, we're mammals, and all mammals on planet Earth have had to cope with uh, recurrent ice ages and mm-hmm. also with really dramatic seasons at certain latitudes. Because of these dramatic ice ages, we've all got the ability to produce heat within ourselves. And this is why we are the kings of planet Earth and not the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs couldn't do this. And that's why they died out after the event uh, in the Gulf of Mexico that basically threw up so much ash that it radically cooled the the temperature of the Earth. Uh And so... um, your body is built to make heat in what's called brown fat or brown adipose tissue. And the pr- formation of this tissue is triggered by exposure to cold. And this is where the interplay between metabolism and immunity becomes very, very uh, both complex, fascinating, and also I think illuminating as to how we can hopefully best deal with these conditions with it from an integrative and holistic perspective. So uh-huh. when, you, when you look at metabolism and immunity, what your body is burning and what it's doing with the energy you're taking in does and should depend upon the season. So if the polar bears don't pack on a ton of weight during the summer, they die during the winter because they run out of fuel to burn in their brown fat to keep warm in the cold of the Arctic, right? So in them, 
obesity and diabetes that is seasonal is not a disease. It is a seasonal adaptation. So uh-huh. if you're a human living in Manitoba, you know, Canada, and you get fat and diabetic over the summer, but then you spend the winter like f- freezing your, freezing your tuchus off ice fishing and you don't eat a lot, you can handle it, right? So if you go back to like, I worked in Bemidji, Minnesota br- briefly, but if you go back and if you look at like, you know, pictures of the Plains Indians from before, you know, their embrace of, of Western technology, food, lifeways, artificial light, et cetera, you know, they didn't have an epidemic of obesity and diabetes. And now the further north you go, the worse these epidemics get. So yes. you have to understand that, you know, metabolism is, is primed for a seasonal environment. And when you've got lots of food around and lots of light, you're naturally going to eat more. So I noticed that now that I, I radically control my light environment and I really avoid a lot of artificial light, you know, I naturally mm-hmm. want to eat three times a day in the summer and I want to mm-hmm. eat carbs. And then when the winter comes, all I want to do is eat, you know, like drink bone broth and have soups and stews and eat, you know, things like cabbage and Brussels sprouts. And, um, uh-huh. and I only want to eat twice a day and I want my last meal of the day to be in the middle of the afternoon. Uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. And you will, and, and your circannual cycle of hormones will follow this. So your thyroid hormone, for example, will be highest in the summer, which is because it's response, natural response to light and it's lowest in the winter. Your sex steroid hormones are lowest when it's least optimal to have sex and have a baby. And so, uh-huh. you know, human mating habits actually, actually mimic this pro- the process in polar bears too. We have a natural spike in conceptions in the early spring in high latitudes. And then we have a natural spike in births. Um, and I shouldn't say the early spring, but in the, in the peak of summer. And then nine months later in the early spring, when things are just warming up again, you see a peak in births. And uh-huh. this gives baby the maximum amount of time with a, an, a, in the summer for the baby to fatten up so that it can then survive you know, what's going to be a long, cold winter. And also for it to get its vitamin D stores up so its immune system can be functional. So, right, vitamin D is a good way to segue into immunity. So in that warm season where you're getting obese and diabetic because you got to survive the winter, you would expect also for the immune system to be turned on, defending you against things like parasites and bacteria that are more common in warm, uh, warm weather or funguses, other things that, that, that are more common in warmer weather, right? Well, okay. you would also expect then for as your metabolism changes in, in the winter, in the dark and the cold, for your immune system to change too, because we deal with and have different epidemics of pathogens, or I should say we have different pathogens that attack us during the winter, right? Things like mm-hmm. cold sores are more common, things like the common cold, flu, right? Why don't we get those in the summer? If you go yes. back and you look at the literature, you also see that... Um, influenza epidemics tend to, tend to be triggered around solar cycles. So they tend to occur in years when the sun is weaker. Uh, the many different plagues in history, like the plague of Justinian is just one example, occurred when volcanic activity reduced the amount of sunlight getting to earth and actually cooled the planet. So we see some pretty radical changes in, <clears throat> in infectious diseases around these solar cycles and it all has to do with how light affects our hormones and our vitamin d levels so so all of that is a long-winded way of saying (laughs) that your immune system and your metabolism really all run on the same signals 
because just as the availability of food and what you should do with it changes with the seasons, so too change the variety, the amount, and even the behavior of the pathogens, bacteria, viruses, parasites, fungi that we contend with and that we have to, you know, be able to fight off and keep in check. So, you know, when you tell me that you're radically going to alter, you know, the, the signals that, that run our metabolism and our immune systems, I, I am not surprised to see epidemics of disease you know, arising in these systems, you know, the immune system and the metabolic system, right? And so um, when it comes to using cold in order to reverse disease, you know, my experience with this in autoimmune diseases at this point is, is not, I haven't had enough to really, to really come out confidently and tell people exactly how it's going to work. What I will tell you is this, the cold seems to basically shut down inflammation, which is one reason why we're using it so much in surgeries postoperatively and with neurological injuries. Mm -hmm. And if the cold can reduce inflammation, it would imply that it is potentially a very significant ally in helping us to basically calm this level of inflammations associated with autoimmune diseases down so that then the immune system can regain control over what it's doing and finally figure out friend from foe and resolve the autoimmune problem. Interesting. I I love that. I mean, um, it's such a, uh, you know, usually you tell people, explain cold therapy to people, and this is really helpful, I think, for people to hear the science behind this coming from you as an MD and all the work you've done in this area because a lot of people they haven't yet connected that something like cold therapy or, um, you know, regulating your diet to align with seasonal changes has as potent of an impact as like taking an RX for some condition. And, um, you know, I think this is a really good connection for people to get that there are things they can do that actually will change um, the way your immune system functions, your, the way your mitochondria function. And um, so I appreciate this perspective. Yeah. And it's the, one of the other ways to think about it is like, because your immune system and your metabolism are wired together, so to speak, it would imply that if you correct a metabolic problem, you might have a significant impact on a immunologic problem. Now that's, mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say that it's sort of, I guess that's speculative on my part, but you know, it's one of the things that I'm most looking forward to getting some, getting some, having some long-term um, basically experience with people who have autoimmune diseases and are willing to, you know, jump in the cold tank. Um, one of my, my good friends has got, uh, he's got four different autoimmune diseases and, you know, he and I met when we were both getting interested in this, um, in cold therapy and uh, I, I keep hounding him because I really want him to get some labs checked because I want to know what a year of being in the cold has actually done for his illness. What I can say is that he, he kept telling me over the course of eating more seasonal diet, controlling his light environment, all this other stuff. Subjectively, he said he just got better and better and better and better. It was just a question of, you know, where's the laboratory basically confirmation of this? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Amazing. I love it. Yeah. Oh, well. 
I'll look forward to reading your book on this in about five or 10 years then when you get some of this. Yeah, believe me. Yeah, I would I would totally write a book on uh, yeah, that that'll definitely be that, that'll happen. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I look forward to that. Um the last thing I want to touch upon here is um if if you're willing to go there is the difference between and this might be a little advanced for some people, but you you're doing an, an awesome job of really laying this out and explaining it in a really easy to understand way. It's it's really awesome. Um but I'm curious about this, this, the difference in um, haplotypes, and we don't have to go into detail of each one, but just for instance, um, like why do, let's say, um, Kenyans tend to win all of the races and, you know, white people like you and I tend to not and not get chosen first on the team and, and this sort of thing, but really what made me uh, inspire this question was this, this whole cold therapy topic. So, um, I also think this might be helpful for people to understand, you know, maybe if cold therapy is more beneficial to them, um, or not. So would you be willing to yeah, dive into yeah, this? Absolutely. So basically, you know, over time, uh, if a genetic mutation confers a benefit, to the bearer, that person's offspring tend to be more successful. So this is why we see patterns in um, in people's appearance, basically based on latitude. The people who are paler and who are, who are you know tend to be from further north, they're able. Their reason, one of the reasons that being pale is an advantage in that environment, is it's a very short period of light that you get to deal with, where the UV light is strong. You can make more vitamin D. Now, the, the, the trade-off there is that if you put those people in strong tropical light, they age faster. I mean, photo-aging is real. Um, people joke about how Asians and black people don't, uh, don't, age, like, don't age. They have such amazing skin, which often is, you know, it's like anecdotally at least, I've certainly observed that. Um, whereas, you know, white people who get out in the sun all the time, particularly when they're young, you know, they'll, they'll tell you that they feel like they look like an old paper bag. Um, you know, in the end, the the reality is the sun reduces all cause mortality. So, you know, you could worry about looking like a paper bag, but at least you're not dying of you know some horrible cancer. Um, so, anyway, that's just the most superficial aspect that people are all sort of aware of. I think people, generally speaking, understand that this is like, you know, having darker skin is protection from the sun. But what I, I wish more people who had dark skin understood is that for them, the consequences of staying out of the sun are greater. And there are many diseases that African-Americans, as just one, as just one ethnic group example, um, have disproportionate in terms of severity and prevalence than white Americans. And I, I think it's linked to the lack of sun in their lives and also the overabundance now of artificial light. Um, so then the other piece of this is that a big part of the genetic toolbox that's been selected for north of the, or away from the equator, I should say, is the ability to produce heat. So I don't think it's a coincidence that the guy who owns the world record for cold exposure is a guy who's white as a sheet from the Netherlands. His name is Wim Hof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if you, if you look at the stress of cold, people who have mitochondria that can very easily generate heat from uh -huh. fuel 
would ha- logically have an advantage in surviving in those environments. And in fact, if you look at one of the most common genetic mutations um, that's very famous because of its protection that it confers against malaria uh, that you see in, in Africa, which is sickle cell disease, those people are exquisitely sensitive to cold. That is one of the only diseases where cold exposure is an absolute contraindication. They should never be exposed to it. And one of the worst things that those people can do is live in a very cold environment because they really need the sun in order to be able to maintain their body heat, in order to be able to avoid the very painful and debilitating sickle cell crises that they run into. So people who are, who are, are white. Now the, the caveat to this is also that, you know, just because you're white doesn't mean that you have mitochondria that can uncouple and produce heat very effectively. There are exceptions to all of these rules, right? And just because you're, you're, you have dark skin and you're from an equatorial country doesn't mean that you're going to have a difficult time um, adapting to uh, the cold. You may take to it like a duck to water. So it's really all about, um, about how healthy you are when you're coming into it. And it's about, you know, sticking with it and really, and really seeing what you can get out of it. And the results are going to be very, very different for different people. Um, the two biggest things that I've, I've heard from people is that they see, if they're in the right position metabolically, they see effortless weight loss. And then another huge thing that people always comment on to me is, is improvements in their pain. Uh, and one of the biggest successes for me was getting my mother's really severe chronic back pain under control with ice baths. Um, and while, while we're on it, you know, you mentioned uh, Hashimoto's uh, before, and we talked about that in specific, specifically in respect to cold. What people with Hashimoto's and chronic fatigue or um, adrenal fatigue need to know is that they have to get their hormone levels somewhat balanced before they can try jumping into the cold. And the reason for that is that you need those hormones and neurotransmitters to be in the mix, in adequate levels, in order to turn on your brown fat to produce heat. Uh, and what about a disease like cancer when it cold, comes to cold therapy? We hear a lot about, uh, you know, warmth, heat for for approaching cancer as an alternative. What about cold, in your opinion? Yeah, so I think that what's interesting about the sort of dichotomy between hot and cold is that when you look at how um, heat affects cells. Uh, it, it really, it comes down to how it affects hydrogen bonding networks within intracellular water. And that work goes back to the work of a guy named Gerald Pollack. And it goes back to the work of a guy named Gilbert Lang and Maywon Ho and all these other really interesting physical chemists, a lot of which is highly academic. I mentioned mm-hmm. it sort of for purposes of completeness, but basically yeah. red light is what charges your intracellular battery. And so I actually think that the ultimate uh, the ultimate way to jumpstart the, the the human battery with with at least with temperature changes is to use traditional sauna that's very very hot, and then to mm-hmm. use very 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 cold um, like ice baths. Um, mm-hmm. And that's my preference. You know, when I'm living yeah. in a in a hot season, I just love to go out and sunbathe and just soak yeah. up the UV light. But yeah. you know, in the cold months where there's not a lot of UV light around or it's raining often. What I'll do, I, well, I'm looking forward to investing in a in a really big uh, traditional sauna. Um, the literature on sauna and on heat treatments for cancer is pretty broad and deep. I don't know of anyone who's done really significant work on cold and cancer. 
But again, you know, cancer is being thought of increasingly as a metabolic disease. You know, Thomas Seafried talks about this ad nauseum. He talks about how the ketogenic diet can be a really useful adjunct in treating cancer. And what I think mm-hmm. is interesting is if you look in nature, ketogenic diets only occur in cold, for humans and other mammals in cold yes. environments in a seasonal oh, pattern, right? So when you look at some of the physiologic changes that the cold bring on, one of those or many of these changes are organized around switching from burning carbs to burning fat and from storing energy to burning it for heat. And so, you know, I, you know, cancer is so strongly linked to blue light. It's so strongly linked to, um, to f- fake light, you know, artificial uh, electrical magnetic fields, radio, microwaves. Um, I really believe, I, I'm very hopeful that we can make progress in people and um, and Dr. Jack Cruz has mentioned, I'll just say obliquely, that he's seen great results with people uh, who have cancer, um, who have been using cold thermogenesis. The other big thing for cancer with with cold uh, cold exposure is simply the recovery from from surgeries or from uh-huh. chemo. Like nothing will nothing will annihilate nausea. Short of, I, I actually have two favorites for nausea. One is ginger root, and the other is cold. Um, I've had people who came in with cyclic vomiting syndrome, which usually is like days of totally unresponsive vomiting. Uh, and one cold shower later, they had no symptoms. (laughs) That's great. I love that. I I know that connection between there because people can get totally floored after, um, a chemo treatment and not be able to eat for days. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, let's see. Is there, um, Anything else that you feel inspired to share with the audience here um, before we go? I want to do just a little rapid fire round with you. But before we end with that, um, is there anything you want to share and or what would be your take home message to helping people support their health in really proactive ways? Yeah, you know, um, the motto at Polar Bear Fitness comes from Albert Einstein. He said, look deep into nature to understand everything better. I think a lot of people think that their systems are confused and that they need to, you know, like take a pill or, you know, you know, drink a cup of bone broth or whatever. And all that can be good. But the key is to really understand how things work in nature in order to regain control over these, what are really systems that are coupled to the environment. Um, you know, modern life is basically like cutting, cutting the brakes from the gas. It's like you have no control over this system that's supposed to be balanced in nature between periods of abundance and periods of scarcity, right? Um, and the key to this is keeping your skin in the game, which is really getting enough nature for your body to have the signals that it needs in order to make the right decisions, no matter what the illness that you're dealing with is. And to remember that sometimes illnesses are really just seasonal adaptations and that those are only seasonal adaptations so long as you experience all the seasons. Um, mm. And then uh, that's why I created Polar Bear Fitness. It's at polarbear.fitness. And for the first 30 days, uh, well, first of all, you get 90 minutes of videos where I explain pretty much everything that I explain up front to my, my patients, uh, almost no matter what they're dealing with, um, okay. plus 30 minutes of... Of, lect- of explanations for how to get cold and how to make it really like feasible and convenient because it's 
it's a lot, it can be a lot of work. I basically spent two years and I, I, I spent like a thousand dollars on different cold tanks trying to figure out what was going to work well. Um, and then, and then like little other pieces of equipment that are helpful for people to know about. Uh, and then there's a 30 page PDF and, uh, you get access to me through the comments and I'm very serious about answering people's questions, making sure the protocol's working for them, all that kind of stuff. And people can sign up for the first 30 days uh, with discount code winter is coming. Um, cool. And uh, yeah, people should check it out. Amazing. Amazing. We'll, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to that so people can check it out. Great. And let's end, let's end with a little rapid fire here. So um, I'll just, say a word or two and you say the first thing that comes to your mind. Some of these things we've already hit on today, but uh, I wrote a list out ahead of time. So let's kind of see where it goes. Sure. Okay. Uh, melatonin supplementation. Yes or no? No. Uh, <laughs> the answer is blue blockers. And I, my caveat to this is that if you have a radically altered circadian rhythm, then timing mm -hmm. melatonin administration exogenously for a period of time can help you yeah. to recapture your circadian rhythms. And Beautiful. basically, it's it's like hitting the reset button, you know? Mm -hmm. But doing it every night for a year is a mistake. Okay, good, good. Uh, sunlight exposure, uh, cancer-causing or not? So 10,000 people die every year of skin cancer in the United States. 2.8 million people die total. That's 0.03% dying of skin cancer. 600,000 die of can cancer, 600,000 die of heart disease, 150,000 of stroke. You can do the math. Uh, <laughs> you are way more likely to die of any of those other things. I intend to look like a paper bag when I die at a ripe old age. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's perfect. Okay. Um, I say type 2 diabetes and you say? Seasonal adaptation that you can easily reverse. Uh, I think the FDA might you might get mad at me for saying that, but let's just say 25,000 polar bears can't be wrong. They reverse it every single winter using darkness and cold. <laughs> okay. Awesome. I will, I'll put a disclaimer in, in the podcast for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't technically say that, but I mean, you know, 25,000 polar bears can't be wrong every single year. Can they? <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. I say leaky gut and you say, I say, a uh, combination of environmental toxins, mm. one of which, and often underappreciated of which, is non-native EMF, radio waves, and microwaves. Mm -hmm. Good one. Okay. Um, photobiomodulation. Fancy way of saying giving cells the right amount of red light radically improves uh, mitochondrial function. What people need to know about this is that the sun is always appropriate as a therapy. Um, I mean, unless, of course, you're already sunburned, um, mm -hmm. you know, use your discretion or, uh, you know, use at your own risk, <laughs> I should say. Um, yes. But, uh, but, you know, otherwise, integrating red light into your life can really be life changing. Um, EMR Electromagnetic Revolution is a company that produces these new red light panels that I'm just starting to play around with. And if people mm -hmm. want to go check those out and buy a red light panel, they can use um, Stillman MD as a discount code. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome for that. Okay. Um, let's see. CBD oil. So the, the endocannabinoid system, uh, it's so hard to make this rapid fire. Um, 
<laughs> CBD and THC are plant compounds that are so ancient in their evolutionary history that we still share the receptors. And so what you're basically doing is hijacking a plant's immune system to treat your chronic sunlight deficiency. So sunlight uh, is the natural trigger in us for production of endocannabinoids and, um, and uh, yeah, endocannabinoids and also endorphins and a lot of other, of other neurohormones and neurotransmitters. Um, there's, there's a lot of other triggers. It's a very complex system, but you know, that's basically, I, I look at it as another sign that the patient has sunlight deficiency. Okay. Like if they do better with CBD oil, you mean? Well, not so much better because a lot of people will do better with it. Um, huh. But like somebody who, who's fallen into addiction and drug abuse, I always think this person probably didn't get enough sun. I got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, statin drugs. Oh, statins. Um, I think that... Uh, I, I think that oh, this is this is such a loaded question. Um, <laughs> you know, just to be frank, it's like nature's got a plan, and if your idea of of helping that plan is to break one of the most important enzymes that produces one of the most important components of the mitochondrial respiratory transport chain, is that you don't understand the plan, um, and that's basically yeah. what statins do. Um, you know, they've got all this data saying that it helps people with these diseases. And my answer is these people wouldn't get these diseases if they didn't live blue lit microwave lives, dining on fake food constantly. And so mm -hmm. the solution is not another pill. It's an actual, you know, diet and lifestyle fix. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well said. Okay. Um, vegan diets. Have only ever worked in extremely hot environments like in the tropics or uh -huh. among people who have practiced uh, asceticism and a monastic lifestyle. Okay. Okay. And lastly, the most important factor to overcoming chronic disease, uh, a positive attitude. <laughs> I love it. Um, my, uh, my favorite, uh, my favorite new meditation is actually from a guy named Mantek Chia. People should look up his book. It's called, he's got a lot of books, but one of them is called, um, the healing light of the Tao. Uh, okay. and it's got two fantastic, um, meditations in it. One of them is called the inner smile and the other one is called the six healing sounds. And I'm really, I, I honestly would say that those have changed my life. Um, wow. they're very simple. I spent a lot of time in the mindfulness, um, field, so to speak, looking for awesome. sort of like the best things. And a lot of it I, I think is very hokey as most people probably agree um, yeah. and so finding really good meditations that actually have some kind of power is, is, uh, let's just say I don't recommend it lightly. Um, uh -huh. and I, I, the older I get and the longer I practice, the more I believe that Hippocrates, Hippocrates was right. He said the greatest, the natural healing force within each one of us is the greatest force in getting well. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Awesome. Um, well, that was a fantastic interview. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show for your willingness to, to come on. I know you have a super busy schedule and um, we just really appreciate having you on and, and hope to have you on again in the future. So thanks so much, Dr. Stillman. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here and thanks for having me. So was your mind blown with that episode or what? This is the direction 
that we're headed with our health, with our healing. This is what it means to be a mitochondriac. This is what it means to be a mitohacker. This is the direction that my work is leading you, is the direction where people like Dr. Stillman is leading you to these root areas of your health. This was a super fun episode and interview to do for sure, but it was also very informative and transformative for all of you, I feel, because... This information about this mitochondrial level, root causes of disease, are areas that our conventional nor our alternative medicine practitioners are really looking at today. And so I hope this episode helped to move you, to shape you and your health choices in a new direction, in a more empowering direction that really helps to support your healing journey. It's people like Dr. Stillman that are really going to help make a huge impact and difference on people's lives, especially as a medical doctor, because many of them are trained to think one way, to approach medicine and healing in one way, and not a lot of medical doctors explore anything else outside of that box. But Dr. Stillman does. It's why I love him, and it's why I had him on the show, because I knew you all would appreciate this perspective and may even benefit in really huge ways. So as he mentioned during the show, he has a really cool new offering called Polar Bear Fitness. And I checked it out. I love it. I actually signed up for it. And I encourage all of you to do it too, because it's a really affordable way to learn more about how to implement CT or cold therapy into your own healing process. And you can learn more about this offering. You can learn more about Polar Bear Fitness, what it entails over at polarbear.fitness. You can also visit Dr. Stillman at stillmanmd.com to learn more about his medical healing practice and what he's up to in the realms of healing. During the episode, you all heard Dr. Stillman mention this great importance about getting your skin in the game. You guys, this is the Sunlight RX. It's exactly why I created the Sunlight RX to teach you all how to utilize sunlight to align your eyes and your skin with the frequencies of nature, of sunlight, to drastically improve your healing potential. This is skin in the game. This is exactly what he means. Now, yes, there's some other frequencies in nature that he's referring to, like the fluctuating Schumann resonance that you get when you're outside in nature and the wind hits your skin and the environment that you're interacting with influences the health, the state of your circadian biology. So if you're someone just starting to heal your mitochondria, if you're new to the mitochondria world, learning the Sunlight RX is an absolutely foundational step for you where you can learn how to improve your circadian biology and get your skin in the game over at my Patreon site, patreon.com backslash sunlight rx once you have the sunlight rx down then it's time to really pin down a diet that supports your mitochondrial health and healing function and your circadian biology most diets today don't consider these crucial pieces they want to talk about foods to restrict supplements to take strict diets to follow but the thing they're not considering is your mitochondrial health Why are over 5 million diet books sold in the U.S. per year? We have not solved this issue around diet because we're not 
looking at it from a proactive place. We're not looking at it from a mitochondrial standpoint. And when you can utilize your diet to shape how your mitochondria function, you will make massive strides in your healing process, especially when you add in the Sunlight RX to your healing path and journey. For those of you who have down the Sunlight RX already, you've got it down, you know how to do it, you're using the sun to help heal, regulate, shape your circadian biology and your mitochondrial health, then it's time to journey into the realms of diet. And this November 17th, 2019, I'm going to be offering a one-day workshop called Jet Fuel, the Optimal Diet for Mitochondrial Health. And I would invite those of you really, truly ready to take this step with your diet to improve the health of your mitochondria and thereby prevent all chronic disease out there today and overcome all chronic disease out there today to join me in this one-day intensive workshop to learn how to use diet specific to you, specific to your, your health and healing needs, specific to your geographical location to help shape the way your mitochondria function. Remember, your health is only as good as your mitochondrial function. And so this workshop is really designed to help teach you how to use food to step up your mitochondrial game. And when you learn how to do this, you will notice that you're buying less and less and less and less and less diet books out there because you'll realize that those books actually aren't getting to the heart of the issue. And it's why so many new ones are published each year. You can actually sign up for this workshop right now over at thesunlightrx.com. This site at this point in time is just 100% dedicated to the workshops that I offer. So head on over there, sign up so you can join me during this transformative jet fuel workshop. As always, you all can get social and follow me over on Insta at sunlight underscore RX, or you can follow me at Facebook at Heather Shepard. And you know my new site, heathershepard.com will be released very soon, likely at the time you listen to this episode. So check that out as well to learn more about how you can continuously heal your mitochondrial health. We'll see you next time. As a reminder, the Primal Pioneer podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease or illness. Neither myself nor any of my guests are responsible for your health or healing outcomes. This podcast and information shared is for informational and educational purposes only.